so lovely to be here. And uh, what can you say? It's lovely. Your meeting reminds me a little bit of our, our son is our pastor. That's difficult. That is scary, having your son as your pastor, Eric. Oh, it's, it's a scary thing. He doesn't do things like I did. <laughs> Does some things better, actually. But um, uh, the, the sort of feeling of the whole thing. I want to congratulate your worship team. The songs that you sang. I go to a lot of churches around the country, up and down the country. Uh, by tonight, I'll have preached 22 times in the last six weeks. And, um, and that's nearly all. Six of them are in my son's church. But uh, um, I go to a lot of churches where the songs they sing are so drab. They're like a Gregorian chant, you know, all on one note. Uh, repetitious. Gregorian. You know. And so repetitious. Just repeating, repeating, repeating. I, I was so blessed by the songs you... Uh, where is it? I've lost it. Oh, he's at the back there, yeah. I was so blessed by the songs you sang this morning, especially when you turned the volume down. It was great. (laughs) Lovely. Fantastic. Great. Praise God. Well, I was born in Coventry while the German bombs were falling on the city. Are we we all right with this here, by the way? That's okay, good. While the bombs were falling on the city, I survived. And uh, uh, at the age of 14, I gave my life to Jesus. Thursday night, listening to Billy Graham in the Coventry Central Hall, Methodist Central Hall, and uh, it was the first time it was relayed. It was from Haringey. First time he relayed his services anywhere in the world, actually. Uh, No pictures, just sound. And uh, that night I gave my life to Christ. The church that just started attending in Coventry, the Assemblies of God Church, was uh, they had an open air every Sunday night in the uh, in the centre of the city in the precinct. And I remember that first Sunday night. By by Sunday, I'd read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, Acts, and a bit of Romans from Thursday night till Sunday. Couldn't I couldn't put the book down? You know, I was I was devouring it. And on the stood in the open air, and the good Welsh deacon who used to run the open air, Brother Owen. Brother Owen, see, he came up and says, there's a young man, yeah, I've got something to tell you. He said, Suddenly I found, he got a mic- I'd got a microphone in my hand. And he said, tell him about it, John. See, so I, I had no theology. I really didn't really know what had happened. I just knew that something wonderful had happened in my life. I knew that God had touched my life. And even though I was a sinner, and how big a sinner can you be at 13 and a bit? Yeah, well, yeah, well, I wasn't quite 14. Um, you know, but I knew I was on the road to hell, not heaven. And I knew that the two, it had all gone. Uh, and I'm so glad that happened because it changed my life completely. And as when I look back, I think having come to Christ as a young man, uh, it's given, given a strength, uh, given me a strength that is um, for me special. Thank God for that. And, uh, as I grew up, I grew up in the church and I went to Bible school and I went into the ministry. I married, the, married a German girl. Yeah, she came to our church to, to, to do nurses training and uh, preparatory to go to be a missionary in India. Came from Germany. Um, they were totally against Hitler and everything he stood for, her and she and her family. But uh, uh, not wasn't a lot they could do about it. A lovely Christian family, godly family. Lutherans, but got baptized in the Spirit. 
as a teenager. And, um, uh, and I didn't know. She was in the church for four years, and I didn't even notice. You know, until about a month before she was due to leave and go to India, and somebody switched the light on. You know, and I suddenly realized that I wasn't going to get much further in life without this girl. And uh, after four years, you know, so I walked home one night and never held a hand and never said anything romantic. But, you know, guys, this is the way. Well, looking around, most of you, it's, you've had your turn, haven't you? Uh, but uh, but um, uh, I, uh, I walked home and uh, she stood one side of the gate where she was staying and I stood the other side of the gate and I said, I've decided I'm going to marry you. I said, uh, I've, just, I've been talking to the Lord about it, and he says, it's okay. He says, uh, and I said, so I won't take no for an answer. I can remember those were the words. I'd practiced them for days. You know. <laughs> and uh, well, she didn't say no. She said, well, I'm going to India. I said, that's fine. You go to India. I'm going to Bible school. <laughs> so, so, so she went to India, and I went to Bible school a little bit later. Three years later, she came back, and we got married. All our courtship was by, by letter. And buy reel-to-reel tape recorder tapes, uh, and uh, you know, it took two weeks to send it and two weeks to get it back. And so it was dead passionate, you know. It was, it was really uh, and, uh, great. And we had two children. We got married and started in ministry. Had two children. Helga was our firstborn, and Marcus, our son, uh, three years later. And uh, on the 21st of December. 1988, I took Helga down to Heathrow and um, kissed her goodbye. She was uh, a bubbly teenage girl. She was very bright. She'd got a place to study music. Uh, She'd got a place to study music at Lancaster University and then probably to go on to the Royal Northern College of of Music. Uh, She had been, she'd got a place in, she'd studied at King Edward VI High School for Girls in Birmingham which is one of the top, we were told, one of the top six girls' schools in the country at that time. And she was very average academically in that school, but that was pretty good. But she excelled in one subject, and that was music. Um, she played the violin in the school orchestra. Um, she was in great demand as a recorder player, different, played different recorders in recorder consorts and different things like that. Uh, but really, her great love was singing. Oh, she led the music in our church, uh, at that time, she led it from, we had a very nice, had given a very nice Bechstein grand piano. This was before the days of electronic keyboards and things. Uh, and she led it all from the piano, and we had a 15-piece orchestra. We had two bassoons, two flutes, two clarinets, two trombones. Um, you can, all these kids have started playing. Our worship music, in the, when we first went to this church in Birmingham, was an old lady on a harmonium. And she sort of retired. Bless her, she had done her best. Harmonium, it's like an organ sort of thing. Uh, she'd done her best, I had to say. You know, she was the only one. So, you know, she practiced her hymns and brought them and said, this is what we're going to sing, this is what I've practiced. She retired and my wife got, my wife's musical, and she got all the kids together with recorders, little kids in junior school. And that was our music. The church was nearly 200, you know. That was our music, recorders, and, and my wife on, 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 this, on the piano. And, of course, because they played every Sunday, they got good. When they went to secondary school, they were all, they were, they were the best, you know. So they were there, we had a full orchestra, and Helga led it all. And, uh, but she, her great love was singing. She loved to sing. She sang with the Birmingham Bach Choir, 
and with the National Youth Choir, which is a pick of all the kids in the whole country. And uh, she'd sang on, on the BBC a, a number of times, sang in the, sang in the um, uh, what do they call it, in the big hall, the festival hall in, in London, in the Albert Hall. Albert Hall, yeah. And uh, she wanted to sing professionally. That was her, her aim. So, but she took a year out before doing a, after doing her A-levels and decided, I'm going to go to America. She was working as a nanny in New Jersey. And uh, she'd been there a few months and come back to meet her friends who'd gone up to universities to collect her music prize from her old school. And we had a great week, a great week. You know, we had a lovely relationship. Uh, we'd been to our teenage tantrums. Dad, I hate you. Yeah, especially when I when she won, I took her in McDonald's and I asked for a plate and a knife and fork. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I won't tell you that story. It's a great story, but I, was, I got one. <laughs> Dad, I hate you. Don't you ever? And all her six form friends were with her. Don't embarrass me again. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, it had all come good, and, and we had a lovely relationship. So I drove her down from Birmingham, where we lived, on the edge of Birmingham, down to Heathrow, kissed her goodbye. Well, she, she went across the area, put her bag down, and ran back and gave me a big hug. I, I, she said something to me, and I wish I could remember what it was, but it's gone. But I, um, I, do, I do remember the smell of her hair. She'd washed it with one of these green apple shampoos that were all the rage at that time. And... I can, when I'm picking apples in our garden, I can, I can sometimes smell this apple shampoo. I remember what I said to her. I said, Helga, I do love you. It doesn't always look like it, but I do. I'm a very Victorian father, you know. Uh, you will, when you say to an 18-year-old girl, you will be in by 10.30, my girl, or else, you know. Uh, uh, yes. Um, but there, there we are. <laughs> uh, but so off she went. I got home, I drove back home, and uh, I was, had a bit of supper, and I was putting books on some new bookshelves I'd built. And telephone rang, and it was an elderly widow lady who had a very large family of boys. I can't remember how many there were, but it was seven, eight, nine. It was nearly a football team. I remember saying to her, Winnie, you know, you've nearly got your football team, you know. Why don't you adopt one or two more and make up the number? Um, uh, but she just loved our, our Helga was the daughter that she'd always wanted. She, and she rang up and uh, she said, oh, Pastor, it was about 10 to 9 in the evening. Pastor, how, uh, did Helga get away all right? I said, yes, thanks, Winnie, why? Oh, she said, well, there's been a plane crash in Scotland. Now, I travelled widely in Asia. I was Assemblies of God Director for Asia with Ray Belfield. We, we worked and travelled together. Uh, from Afghanistan right through to Japan, the Philippines, and that area. So all those countries across Asia traveled very widely. Uh, but I'd never been to the States. And to me, you know, Scotland was up there and America was over there. I didn't realize that that's the way they go sometimes. It's been, obviously been many times since. Uh, I said, okay, thanks, Winnie. So I, I put the television on and it was five to nine. I remember I thought I'd catch some, some news. Uh, and I turned the television on, and there was a news flash. I called my wife, and I called our son Marcus, who was 15 at that time, and I remember Marcus was sitting on the sofa, my wife was sitting on the arm of the sofa, and I was standing next to her, and we're looking at the television set. And uh, we're going to see a two-minute news uh, uh, film clip now. It's, um, it's from a film called After Lockerbie. It was made at the 10th anniversary 
and it won the BAFTA Award for the best documentary of the year. Uh, it features five families who lost people in that disaster. We're right in the middle. Um, and uh, so uh, the little bit, the introductory bit, uh, was the beginning of that film. And then it goes on to the news flash that we saw that night as we stood there, sat there and stood there in our lounge. Could we have it and uh, Chris, please? This is what we saw now. Was her sister. start looking and watching this news flash and a little bit more besides it didn't have the nice background music with it of course uh, I remember I remember saying how awful these poor people how dreadful I mean normally we are observers aren't we of other people's disasters these things don't happen to us do they although I'm not foolish enough not to know that even in a relatively small group like this uh, there are private and personal disasters and tragedies that the world doesn't know anything about and uh, only a few people know, and the people that are close to you, uh, all sorts of things. But generally speaking, uh, uh, colossal things like this, uh, that's, that happens to other people. And we stood, sat there watching, and stood, I stood watching all this, and, um, and then it went on, and uh, it came up on the screen, Pan Am Flight 103. And I checked her bags in, but, I, you know, we'd prayed for a safe journey for our girl. Uh, no idea it concerned us at all. Uh, but my wife said, that's Helga's plane. I think mothers have, a, have another sense, an extra sense in these things somehow. That's Helga's plane. There was a stunned silence. It seemed to go on forever. 
but I suppose it was just a few seconds. And the silence was broken by Marcus yelling at the television, No, 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 no! Lisa, my wife, the words hardly able to trickle out of her mouth, was saying, Helga, Helga, Helga. Some years, some months later, six months or so later, we were discussing about our feelings on that night, and she said her main, the main feeling she had was the time that her little girl needed her the most. She was, wasn't able to be there. I couldn't find any words, which for a preacher is a strange thing. But no words would come. I was struck dumb. I remember it went on to, uh, there was some sport, and I remember there was a thing about how much was being spent on credit cards that Christmas. Uh, And we we turned the television off, and we stood together in our living room, and we put our arms around each other, the three of us, and we asked God to help us. And I want to say, looking back over the 22 years this Christmas, 21st of December. Looking back over those 22 years, the grace of God and the goodness of God has been amazing. Uh, More than we could have ever dreamed. Uh, We, there's been a lot of tears and there's been a lot of pain. And just not very long ago, my wife and I, I can't remember what what, what it was that caused it, but I, I found myself welling up a bit. And, uh, I, I, and I knew that she was as well. And, uh, you know, that's 21 years on. That, that something had triggered it. Um, there's been a lot of tears. There's been a lot of pain. But, you know, over it all, there's been an overarching sense of the peace of God. Uh, there is a verse in the Bible that talks about the peace of God that passes understanding. And um, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I know enough Greek to uh, know that even, an even better translation of that is the peace of God that doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense. And we have said to ourselves at times, we shouldn't be feeling like this. We should be falling apart at the seams, especially in those early days. We should be falling apart at the seams. We shouldn't be feeling like this. And yet we had this amazing, amazing peace. And uh, I, I mean, if someone had said to me, you know, a day before it happened, how would you feel if your daughter was blown out of the sky six miles up above the Scottish borders by a terrorist bomb? Uh, I think I would have felt said, I feel like going and jumping off a bridge or jumping under a train or something. I wouldn't have done because I'm not that sort of person. But uh, I know that's how I would have felt. But when it came to it, you know, and... The word of God tells us that the grace of God, he gives grace in time of need. Not before, it's never too early and it's never too late. Uh, and I thank God that, you know, when we walk through the dark valleys, he does walk with us and his grace is sufficient. And more than sufficient. Uh, we, we can't understand it, it's been uncanny. It's, I can only say, it's the amazing grace of God. And uh, it's miraculous. On the, uh, the next day, they came, ITN came, would we give them an interview? We invited them in, it was raining, it was a dark, it was, it was either the next, my wife always says it was the day after, 
she was probably right, but you know, <laughs> my memory is that it was the next day. Um, but it was the 22nd or 23rd of December, Christmas, you know. And they came into our lounge, and there was a cameraman. It was the biggest crew I've ever seen, actually. There was a cameraman, there was a lighting engineer, there was a sound engineer, and the interviewer. And uh, they came in. We sat on, my wife and I sat on the sofa in our home. And uh, I tell you, if, if the questions they asked were marvellous. If I had written the questions for them, they couldn't have been better. They walked straight into it, really. Uh, I felt sorry for them afterwards. (laughs) And that night on on the 6 o'clock news and the 10 o'clock news, I got four times as much time as Mrs. Thatcher. Uh, And uh, someone, friends in America, phoned us and said it was on Coast to Coast on CNN, this interview. He said, um, you know, you're a Christian minister. Has this not destroyed your faith? Uh, And I said, well, sir, this is where we prove whether what we've preached and believed and said we've believed what we've preached and taught for virtually all our lives. This is where we prove whether it's real or whether it's just a game. I said, sir, it's early days. You know, it's only 48 hours. It's early days. But so far, the grace of God has been more real than we ever dared imagine. And uh, looking back over 22 years, I wouldn't change a word of that. I think my answers and my wife's answers were inspired somehow. We'd committed it to God, you see. We'd said, Lord, if you will help us with the media. We never dreamed that they would still be... I was doing interviews last week. We never dreamed that 21 years, 22 years on, we'd still be at it. We thought, you know, a week or two. (laughs) Um, We said, Lord, if you help us with the media, we'll seek to bring as much glory to you out of this horrible business as possible. We will add value to our daughter's death. And... uh, then, so he asked one or two other questions, and then he said, uh, well, he said, um, how do you feel? There are rumors that it was a terrorist bomb. It was the fourth, fourth day before we knew. Uh, there are rumors it might have been a terrorist bomb. How do you feel about the people who put bombs on airplanes? I said, well, it's an awful thing to do. They shouldn't do it. But I said, uh, as far as this family's concerned, whoever did it, and by the way, we still don't know who did it. The man, the Libyan who's gone back to Libya to die, not guilty. I sat through the 10 months of the trial in Holland and through his first appeal. He's a, he's a scapegoat. He's the fall guy. He's a political fall guy. It's all about Libyan oil and the need of the United States and, and Britain as well to sell our technology to Libya. And uh, there's other things behind it as well. But uh, certainly I'm 90 to 95% convinced that man is not guilty. And uh, truth is being hidden from us. They've gone to immense efforts to keep the truth from us. There's something very big and very ugly behind it all somewhere. Anyway, um, I I said, uh, as far as this family is concerned, whoever did it is forgiven. Oh, he said, that's a very generous attitude. How can you forgive animals like that? Those were his words. But whilst I was just scratching around in my mind for a succinct, you know, and pointed answer, my wife sort of signaled that she wanted to say something, so they swung the camera back round onto her, and her answer was classic. She said, well, sir, Jesus said if we don't forgive our enemies, and she took him straight to the Sermon on the Mount. This went out 6 o'clock news and 10 o'clock news. Uh, she said, Jesus said if we don't forgive our enemies, our Heavenly Father will not forgive us. Sir, she said, we haven't murdered anybody. 
but we are big sinners. And we're having to trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as our only hope of salvation and of forgiveness and of heaven. Wow. I thought, wow. You know, that went out. <laughs> yeah. And uh, was it? And there were other, other questions. Went up. What, it was a great, great interview, I, I can remember. Uh, on the fifth morning, after it had all happened, the day before that, we got news that it, they'd found evidence that it was a bomb. And I'd guessed that from the beginning. I'd worked in the aircraft industry as a young man. I did my training uh, as a technical illustrator, uh, producing technical manuals for fighter aircraft, um, um, repair, maintenance manuals, and things like that. And uh, uh, I knew that 747s didn't fall out of the sky for no reason at all, you know. And I guess there was dirty work afoot. But it came out, it was a bomb, and there were howls of anger from America, still are, mainly from America. Not all the Americans like this, but most of them, and some of them very vociferous. And they wanted, nuke the Arabs, you know. They wanted the Middle East blasting off the, off the map. And uh, I sat at her desk that morning, five o'clock in the morning. I had not had a very good night. I'd slept very well the two nights before. But that night I was up early and five o'clock I sat at her desk and um, just thinking and praying and uh, I thought, I said, Lord, if I, if I am like that, that's no good. I want, don't want to be like that. I, if I want an eye for an eye, you know, and I thought about what Mahatma Gandhi had said, an eye for an eye and the world will soon be blind. Yeah. Wise words. Wise words. A vicious cycle of, of revenge, 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 you know. Uh, and, and I said, if I, if I want someone dead because my daughter's dead, I make myself no better than the terrorists. I bring myself right down to their level. And, you know, we do that with everybody that we hold grudges against and want some sort of vindication. And I, I, uh, I said, uh, I bring myself right down to their level. But I've got to do something. I'm not a sort of person to sit by and do nothing. And so I sat, I sat at her desk at, and my mind went to what my wife had said, the Sermon on the Mount. And I found myself reading, I don't know whether I opened my Bible at it or whether it came into my mind, but I found myself reading Romans chapter 12, verse 21. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil by doing good. That's uh, one translation. Don't be overcome by evil. Overcome evil by doing good. And I thought, well, how do, what, how do we do this? You know. And uh, that is how we win. And I can't strike back at anybody we didn't know then, and I don't know now who did it. Um, but whoever did it is forgiven. We've done that. That's, and it's real. And it hasn't been difficult. People don't believe me, but you know, I do so. I guess I've done it probably around about 100 television interviews and I mean, during the trial, the whole world's media was there on certain days when certain evidence was being led. Uh, I did um, 47 interviews one day with radios, television, newspaper, magazines, you know, uh, Time magazine and all sorts of people. A Japanese television, it's <laughs> all the lot. Um, and uh, I, I, I thought, right, how do we do that? 
how do I overcome evil by doing good? And we can't hit back at the terrorists, but there is one we can. We can hit back at the arch-terrorist. Have I lost contact? No? We're all right. We can hit back at the arch-terrorist, the architect of all the evil in the world, Satan himself. But how do I do it? And that scripture came to me, overcome evil by doing good. Love your enemies. Well, I'm, I'm still working on that one. Forgiveness is one thing. Loving them is, a, is another. But we're working on it. It's work in progress. I think we're doing all right, actually. We're doing all right. I spoke to the man in prison before I was, more, before I was uh, as convinced as I am today that he was, wasn't guilty. I was pretty convinced. But, um, and I, he was in prison in Scotland, and I spoke to him and said, look, you know, as far as my family concerned, we feel that you're probably not guilty, but only you and God know. He's a Muslim. He reads the Quran every day, but he also reads the Bible. And um, uh, I said, only you and God know, and maybe someone else. But I said, as far as this family is concerned, you're forgiven. Because God has forgiven us. You know. And uh, there's been some correspondence with him. And um, he's heard the gospel. You know. Now, uh, so I said, right, I've got to forgive him. And we're going to overcome evil by doing good. You see, this forgiveness business, I was born in Coventry. And in the cathedral, which was bombed during the war, burnt out, they got two charred beams and made a cross and put it up on the wall behind the altar. And the words, Father, forgive, there. And um, I never thought at that time I was going to have to give one day this word forgiveness some very serious thought. You know, it's a theory, isn't it? We love our enemy. We forgive. We read it, and we don't really give it serious thought. And that morning I sat down at her desk um, and uh, started to seriously think about forgiveness. We have to forgive. We have no option. If we use the name of Christian, we have no option. Uh, it's very clear. Because we have been forgiven. Yeah. We have been forgiven. I thank God we have, we, I owe a debt. And I can't really repay it. Why should God forgive a sinner like me? But he has. And he keeps doing it every time I ask him. You know, I've I, I come back to... i come come back to... Um, uh, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a forgiving God we've got. Yeah? And, uh, and, and again and again and again and again. He's the God of the second chance and the third chance and the hundredth chance and the millionth chance. I thank God for that. And so I have an obligation to forgive. He says... Uh, Paul writes in Ephesians 4.32 be kind to one another tender hearted forgiving one another just as God in Christ has also forgiven you yeah it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a debt that we owe and we don't have an option it is not debatable whoever harms us or hurts us in any way oh if only Christians could forgive each other Sometimes. And Jesus illustrated this vital principle, didn't he? In, in the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18, he said about the servant who owed, who owed his master, you know, a million pounds. I, it, I, you, I wouldn't know what the current figures would be, but it was a vast sum. 
And the, he, and the master called him before him, the king called him, and he says, right, in jail for you unless you pay every penny. Oh, you know, I've got a wife and six children and all the rest of it. And, and, and the king forgave him. But he went away and he found another servant that owed him ten bob, yeah, fifty pence, something of that order. And he threw him and his family and his wife and his children into prison, and you'll stay there until you've paid the last penny. And it came to the ears of the king. You know the rest of the story. So my heavenly Father also will do to you. These are the words of Jesus, friends, not some philosopher or some preacher. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother. <laughs> strong stuff. This is strong theology. <laughs> strong stuff. And Jesus was so serious uh, that directly after giving us the Lord's Prayer, he gave it double emphasis. And actually, there's a lot of theology behind it to unpack, which we don't have time for this morning, but he, he made forgiveness a condition. It sounds like a condition of God's forgiveness. He said, if you forgive, my wife quoted it, if you forgive your men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That's scary. That frightens me. Frightens me. But then there are practical reasons why we should forgive. That's the spiritual reason. You see, when we forgive people, we set them free. You know, you know, it's a great thing to be able to set people free, isn't it? That gives us, in a sense, it gives us power over them in, in one sense. We say, I'm going to forgive you. You're free. I, I remember, have you, ever, have you ever carried a burden of guilt and, and, and not been able to look someone in the face and felt really, really bad about what you've done or said or, or whatever? Yeah, yeah. Well, I have. I remember about, the, I was about the age of seven and it was at, after the war, just after the war. We were still on ration books. I was six or seven. And uh, you, you had to take your coupons to the shop. I think we'd just started getting chocolate. Didn't taste chocolate till I was seven. I've made up for it since. And, uh, uh, and uh, uh, you could get your sort of, you know, half a pound of sugar. And it got to last you for three weeks or whatever, you see. And uh, some of you are old enough to remember all, all of this. And so much, so much butter and two sausages. And that was, that was it. That was your ration for the week. And, and uh, mum used to save up the coupons for when we had special visitors, and she'd buy little special things. And we used to get, she used to get these, I'm not sure whether they were round trees or chivers, jellies, in a little cardboard box, in gelatine cubes linked together. I know one was powder and one was these cubes, and I can't remember which was which. But um, uh, we didn't have a fridge, we were pretty poor, we didn't have a telephone, we didn't have a car, we didn't have a fridge. But we had, she used to keep these in a little cupboard. And um, I, I, sweets, we didn't get it much in the way of sweets. And uh, I remember coming down one day, in the middle of, well, one night, maybe two o'clock in the morning or whatever, coming downstairs and going into this cupboard and opening this little box of gelatine blocks and taking off one cube. Oh, that was delicious. I can nearly taste it now. I think I'll have another one, I said. I said and I had two. Wrapped it up carefully, idiot. Put it back, you know, really should have taken it and buried it in the garden and she would have wondered what had happened to it. But I wasn't quite that devious. <laughs> and I went back to bed. 
come Sunday, we've got visitors coming, so you're going to make a jelly. John, <laughs> have you been at the, at the jelly? Me, what? what? Like me, mum? No. It must have been Roger, my brother. Roger was two. <laughs> you know, how stupid can you get? You know, but do you know, I felt so bad. I'd, first of all, I lied to me mum. We weren't a Christian family. Mum and dad got saved later on in life. Years, a few years after me. And uh, um, I'd felt terrible. I'd lied to me mum. And I knew I was going to get found out. And I, I didn't know what to do, you know. And for a whole week, I did, couldn't look her in the face. Until about a week later, she said to me, John, I know you did it, but I still love you. You're forgiven. Oh, heaven, you know. And she still loved me. Yeah, she found, it was a lime jelly, and there were streaks of lime juice on my pillow. <laughs> my pillow, <laughs> you see. It, we set, and when we set others free, we set ourselves free. We do. We set ourselves free. You know, and it makes us more like Jesus when we forgive. He's a great forgiver, isn't he? You know, and uh, we need to forgive, learn to forgive. We've got to forgive our enemies. I find it more difficult to forgive my friends, actually, the ones that we thought were on our side. It's been much more difficult forgiving our Western governments. They had 14 warnings. They had a photograph of the bomb three weeks, uh, 16 days before. A phone call to the American embassy in Helsinki saying there's going to be a bomb in a Toshiba radio cassette player, and it was, on a Pan Am flight, and it was, out of Frankfurt to New York via London, and it was. And the only people who got warned were the American embassy personnel in Moscow. And it was the only flight crossing the Atlantic, of all the airlines, of every airline in the world that was crossing the Atlantic from Europe to America in the week before Christmas. It was the only plane that had empty seats on it, and it was only two-thirds full. American personnel had cancelled flights. Warned because of intelligence we received, don't fly with Pan Am. And nobody told us. That's obscene. That's why we're still asking questions. We want to know why. Why it was allowed to happen. Not who did it. Why it was allowed to happen. Yeah. So we've got to forgive our Western government. We've got to work harder at that. Forgiving Mrs. Thatcher and other people who certainly knew something knew something. I'm going to finish in a moment, but some people say, say, if you forgive criminals, you're soft on crime. No, no. No, no. If you beat me up outside and steal my wallet, and there's not much in it, by the way, so uh, um, I'll forgive you. Uh, I think there's about, I think there's about, I think there's about 25 quid in it. But, uh, um, uh, I'll forgive you. I won't hold a grudge against you. Maybe you need it more than I do. But I won't stop the policeman from dragging you off to jail. Paul says, you know, he says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. Writing to Romans and the Roman Christians under Nero, a wicked government. But he says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. The authorities that exist are from God. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. You know, I won't, the law must not forgive. It must pursue and prosecute and bring to justice for the sake of society. And uh, that helps me to forgive, actually. That makes it a lot easier for me to forgive. I want to finish by reading a little bit of an article here. It's called The Grace to Do the Impossible. Uh, I'm not going to read it all, but you can read a couple of paragraphs. Uh, a, a, a Scottish journalist phoned me 
in 2003. And he put, this was in the Scottish Herald, 18th of the 9th, 2003. Uh, and we had a long interview. He lives in the Hebrides. Not the Hebrides, sorry, the Shetlands. And he said, imagine you have a 19-year-old daughter. She is the pride and joy of your life, more precious to you than life itself. And he goes on. You've watched her grow and all the rest of it. And then he talks about what happened, the bomb and everything. He says, uh, uh, for John Mosey, being a clergyman would not have made life easier. Being called a clergyman, I'm not sure where that promotion. <laughs> In fact, there would be more pressure on him because Christians are supposed to forgive even their worst enemies. And he talks about my forgiveness. He says, uh, I'm not sure that I could pass the test. I've never understood those who say that Christianity is an easy religion and that people sign up to it because it offers cheap consolation. And then he quotes from the Sermon on the Mount, Old King James. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbour and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you, that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. And then he says, easy, really. There are some texts in the Bible that I hate, he says, and that is one of them. And yet that same impossible command gets right under your skin. The and he talks about Nelson Mandela then. And then he says, the enormity of forgiveness flowing from such conditions is impossible to understand. It is the insanity of grace. I like that. The insanity of grace. It doesn't make sense. It's crazy. Forgiving people who kill your daughter. Forgiving people who... Forgiving terrorists. It's the insanity of grace. And, you know, I think of God's insanity. I say, why should God forgive me? It's crazy. He could have just wiped us off the face of the earth. Sent another flood. Well, he promised he wouldn't do that. Okay, an atomic explosion. Yeah? Wiped us off. But he hasn't. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Instead, he sent out love to reach us. Yeah. So glad God loves us. That's why we can forgive.